following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. When I found myself growing in like uh, to this amazingly cute and godly woman, Jean Sharp, I started anticipating my contact with her. I took extra care of my appearance. I made sure that it didn't smell bad. I checked my breath. And the more I got to know her, the more I began to get a clear picture on what kind of behavior actually might win her heart. And friends, I got to tell you, I wanted to win her heart. She tells me that I was some sort of sought-after male fish in the Grace Community Church pond. But in my thinking, I wanted to bag the rarest, trophied, best-looking, best, most sought-after big-game female in the jungles at Grace. So that's what I wanted. The day arrived for her first visit to my very dark bachelor pad, my apartment, and I learned that Jean was neat and that she was clean and that she valued organization. And so the day that she arrived, I was, uh, for days previous, uh, working on some things. I'm not averse to cleanliness or organization, but I knew that if I was going to you know, win this trophy 10-point Proverbs 32, which means she's beyond 31 woman, that I knew that I had to step it up to a whole new level. So I cleaned my apartment. I mean, I mega cleaned it. I vacuumed normally, but I really vacuumed. And I wiped down things, and I windexed uh, the mirrors, and I did the dishes in the, put all the dishes away. There are no water spots anywhere, anywhere. One of my major dilemmas, though, is I didn't have a drawer in my bathroom, and uh, I had to put my toiletries on the sink counter. So what I decided to do, I took a a really brand new washcloth, I laid it out kind of just perfectly square, and I lined up all my toiletries like, like soldiers under inspection. And I, I was ready. I was excited. I was a little nervous. And I had done everything I could, and I definitely made an impression. And she still to this day talks about the lining up of the stuff on the washcloth. And I was well on my way to winning her heart. Isn't it amazing, though, the things that you will do to, for someone that you're expecting to come when you love them? The hope of a future relationship with her really altered my immediate behavior. And my precious family of Christians, as we gather here today, our hope in Christ's coming, his future coming, will alter your immediate behavior when you love him, when you're excited about him when you realize what he's done for you, when you realize what that return actually means. Like getting ready for Gene to come, believers will get ready for Christ to come again because they can't wait. They can't wait to see the one they love. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 through 18, where we find ourselves in our ongoing study of this epistle, uh, Peter speaking to the churches in Asia and he's telling them that you're really going to live godly if you do genuinely expect that Jesus is going to return. So if you're not there already, open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3 and follow along in the outline either on your phone or that you have in print. 
and we're going to exposit God's word on the second coming of Christ. We've studied the first half of the chapter, verses 1 through 10, and that talked about the certainty of Christ's return and also the foolish ideas that the false teachers had come up about Christ's return and exposes all of those. And now, in verses 11 through 18, as we finish up the book, he basically makes it very clear that God intends for the second coming of Christ to alter the way that you live today. We need to live differently, Christian. Christian, we need to live differently if Jesus Christ is coming again, and he is coming again, and it should affect every single day. I find myself increasingly different through this study. I'm hoping it will continue in my life. And in verses 11, 1 through 18, Peter lists eight dramatic changes that the Holy Spirit wants to make in your life in light of Christ coming again. And so you're going to find those eight points in these remaining verses. And we're going to look at one of them today. Each of them will be dramatic. In fact, each one will begin, each one of you will begin to live more for eternity than for today. Uh, you'll enjoy internal peace. You'll be more faithful at sharing the gospel. If you really live in light of his return, you'll grow more doctrinally astute. You'll gain greater biblical discernment. You'll experience greater spiritual growth and maturity as a result of living every day in light of his return. And you'll live in continual praise. Now, the first distinction is in verses 11 through 13. And so today is like an, a best escape ever. It's like a vacation the anticipation of the ultimate vacation, a transition of heart from an earthly focus today to a heavenly one, uh, from a temporal priority to an eternal priority, uh, from less love towards the now and more love towards forever, <laughs> and really less consumed with the everyday and more consumed with the eternal stay. Uh, it, it's going to be different. Peter wants his readers to face the reality that this existence that we have Today is nothing compared to the existence you'll have for all eternity. Our time on this planet is unbelievably short compared to eternity. You got it? Amen? Yes? And this current life living for Christ on this fallen sinful planet will be burned with fire and the future life living with Christ on a new sinless earth will be all brand new and forever. And Peter wants his churches that he's writing to, way back then in the first century, to feel the reality that there are only two viable options for eternity, and you know what they are. One of them is to be in the place where the unrighteous exist in torment after God's judgment of this world, and two, the second place, will be in the place where those who have been made righteous will exist in the presence of the one who is truly, perfectly righteous. This is why the Bible instructs you and I to be ready for his return. Are you living in light of eternity every single day? It should affect the way that you live. And read Peter's eternal comments now, verses 11 through 14a. And notice Peter's usage of the word looking. You'll see that there three times. Looking three times. And then you'll see a negative motivation here and a positive motivation here. So out of all the changes, all eight changes, this is the big one, the eternal change, the major change, the first change. Let's read it out loud from your outline together so we can read it together. And let's begin in verse 11, and we'll end at the very uh, beginning of verse 14. Everyone together. Here we go. Ready? Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, 
What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things. He says, looking three times here in these three verses. Looking for what? We're looking for the destruction of this old earth and the old heavens. And we're looking for the, basically, the brand new created new heavens and new earth. The new heavens. Look at your chart and your outline. And Second Peter, the apostle does not focus on any event of the last days except for the second coming of Christ, the judgment that follows, and the eternal state. That's it. That's all he focuses on. He doesn't talk about the, the rapture. He doesn't talk about the tribulation. He doesn't talk about the thousand-year millennium, but only Christ's return and judgment. Now, let me clarify these terms, and after our study of Second Peter, we're actually going to do a little study on these in eschatology, on the rapture, etc., and the second coming, and uh, obviously the kingdom. But the rapture is that future event that Jesus Christ will descend from heaven in a moment of time. It actually is described as a twinkling in an eye. And the resurrected bodies of departed believers will go first and then transform you. If he was to rapture right at this moment, you would instantly, right now, be transformed in your glorified body at this very moment and then escorted into heaven to live with him forever. The church of Jesus Christ, living and dead, will be snatched up to meet the Lord in the air, described in John 14, 1 Corinthians 15, and 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, which is listed there in your outline. Look what it says. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. All those people that you love who have now gone will rise first. And then verse 17, And we who are alive and remain, that's us right now, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be, what? With the Lord. Okay, well, do you want this to be your generation? Okay, would you keep praying, please? Because I certainly do. And I'm running out of time. Okay, so the rapture is the first phase of the second coming. And I believe it's the beginning of the day of the Lord and all these eschatological events. Now, the tribulation follows that, and that is the unique and final seven-year period of judgment to fall on Israel and unrepentant humanity when God will pour out his wrath on sinful, disobedient world. Matthew 24, look what it says. For there will be a great tribulation such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, no ever will. Now, that, that's quite a statement. Would you agree? Nothing will exceed this. And this is followed then by the kingdom, and that is God's utopia on earth, which occurs right after the second coming. Christ's kingdom is when Jesus physically establishes a thousand-year reign of glory and peace, fulfilling all the promises he made to the nation of Israel. Take a look at that verse, Revelation 20, verse 4, and I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, the day of the Lord, if you're understanding eschatology here, is really the summation of all these future events. They, when they start, that's the day of the Lord. 
all these eschatological events yet to come. They begin with the rapture, I believe, and the tribulation then finishes with the new heaven and the new earth and the eternal state. There are many other events that haven't been mentioned here. Obviously, the seals, the bowls, the trumpet judgments, Armageddon, the Antichrist and his beast, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the Bema Jumma for believers, the great white throne judgment, all humanity, and now so many more are waiting and coming. But the most important end times event is the second coming of Jesus Christ after the tribulation and before the kingdom. This is the main event of the day of the Lord, the main event of all future eschatological events, and the one main event that Peter focuses on in 2 Peter. In chapter 3, the spotlight is on the second coming. And again, the reason for this is that the false teachers were attacking the second coming because they didn't want to face judgment. They didn't want to be accountable for their behavior. They didn't want to have to answer for their sinfulness and the direction of their life, etc. And they wanted to live any way they wanted. And also, this is the most promised event in the Scripture. Let me say that one more time. The second coming of Christ is the most promised event in the Scripture. The physical return of Christ is embraced by every end times theological system. And the belief in the second coming of Christ is embraced by every single genuinely born-again Christian. If you are saved, you will affirm that Christ is literally, physically going to return to this earth. All genuine Christians believe in a physical, literal second coming of Christ. You say, why? Let me give you a couple of stats. Jesus' return is explicitly referred to 1,845 times in the Bible. Did you catch that? 1,845 times. The second coming of Christ is directly mentioned in 23 out of the 27 New Testament books. Out of the 260 New Testament chapters, there are 318 references to the second coming. That's more than one per chapter. Jesus' second coming is mentioned eight times more than his first coming. Did you catch that? Eight times more than his first coming. Every one mention of salvation in the Bible has two mentions of the return of Christ. Jesus himself refers to him returning 21 times in the Gospels. Jesus does. And believers, that's you and I, are exhorted over 50 times to get ready for the second coming. Do you think this is an important event? This is an important event. Believing the second coming of Christ moves you from temporal to eternal. And listen, I have never met that person who is so heavenly minded they're no earthly good. I have not met that person. That is a bad phrase, friends. We, you and I, need to be more heavenly minded. We need to think about heaven every day. We need to think about the return of Christ every day. We need to move from earth to the new earth, and it's meant to dramatically alter your life Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Again, verses 1 to 10 is the certainty of his coming, and now verses 11 through 18 describe how this should alter the way we live. Like crazy Chris preparing for that gorgeous gene, all Christians are preparing for the return of the Lord they love. Two weeks ago, we learned that Peter made a summary statement in verse 11. And in verse 11, he expands on that summary statement, then in verses 12 through 18 as he finishes up. But the summary statement, the main statement, the big punch is verse 11 that starts this whole section. 
read verse 11, it says, Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Then in 12 through 18, Peter explains the changes the Holy Spirit wants to make in your life. Believers, you and I will live less like this world and more like Christ when we live knowing that Christ is going to destroy, burn this world. Look at verse 10. Remember verse 10? Take a look at it. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief when the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will all be what? Burned up. Remember all your favorite stuff is going to be burned up. Verse 11, one more time, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, burned up, what sort of people are you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Peter's saying only the fruits of holy living, only the fruits of Christ-like conduct will remain. In fact, any life lived for this world, if you're genuinely saved, will go naked into the judgment. And any life lived for Christ will be laden with eternal riches. The false teachers loved this world. That was the big deal. They lived for this world, and they taught that Christians can love this world just like they love the world and still be called Christians, which is exactly opposite of James 4.4, that if you love this world, you don't love God. And so Peter is get really pointed here. Peter basically says and responds with, this world that you love, false teachers and you know Christians who are being swayed by them, it's going to burn. It's going to burn. Verse 11 isn't a question, it is a statement. He's saying this, literally, how astonishing excellent you ought to be. The starting statement of verse 11 is how astonishingly excellent you ought to live. And then he says at the end of verse 11, what sort of people you ought to be in holy conduct and godliness. That word sort, you might want to circle that in your Bible, that is the word uh, like manner, the, what manner of people you ought to be, what kind of people you ought to be. And it really means alien and foreigner. He says, you ought to be a foreigner. You ought to be an alien. You ought to be somebody who like doesn't speak a language you understand. Christians are foreigners. You're different. You're different. Not odd. Remember we talked about that? You're not odd. Work at be, not being odd. Work at that. Because different is attractive and odd is repelling. And in light of the eternal destruction and judgment, he says, holy and godly. Verse 11, and holy godliness and godliness, holy conduct and godliness. Holiness is unique and separate. Godliness is Christ-like and pleasing to God. And what you're saying is all you say, all you do, you're saying, Lord, does this please you? Is this really living in light of your coming? You live according to the Bible, not because it's just that it's only God's character and it's, it is God's law. But you live according to God's word because you love Christ. Because of all that he's done for you. That has sacrificed everything in order to rescue you from your sins. And because he's the judge that you want to please. Again, like getting ready for Jean to come over. I wanted to be prepared, organized, and clean because I was loving her. Christians live holy and godly because they have a heart that loves Christ. Because of everything that he's done. How could we not live that way? So after Peter shouts this summary statement for this section, verse 11, how astonishingly excellent you ought to be, he then describes how you'll live different before he comes. Your marriage, your parenting ought to be different, your friends, your schooling, your job, the way you drive should be impacted by Christ's return. And the first big way is, number one in your outline, living for eternity longingly. Living for eternity longingly. Look, look at verses 12 and 13. 
looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There's a positive and a negative here. Do you see it? Both something to flee and something to pursue, something to fear to be a part of, something to hope to be a part of, something to dread and something to desire. Verse 12 is Christians looking at the day after this world is destroyed. And verse 13 is looking for the new heavens and the new earth. One's temporal, one's eternal. And so longing for eternity means first the expectancy of the destruction of the old universe. First, the expectancy of the destruction of the old universe. The key verb here, of course, you already know, is looking. It's in verse 12, 13, and 14. And it means to await eagerly, to be expectant, to uh, find yourself longing for something. It's the same Greek word looking in Luke 3.15. Now while the people were in a state of what? Expectation. So there's longing, expectation that Peter's describing here. He's describing an attitude of excitement. An attitude of anticipation as you wait. You know what Peter wants? He wants you and I to grow an outlook on life. The way we look, the, the lenses that we look at life through waiting and wonderfully anticipating that the Lord would return today. That's what he wants. He wants us to spend each day as if it was our last day. That's what he wants. And because you realize this world's going to be dissolved and that every, the very elements will be disintegrated, you fix your hope not on this world, but only on the Lord Jesus Christ and eternity with him. What you see around you now is going to burn since you don't know the day or the hour then we should be continually ready now there's a danger and this is something that i think we all face i know i have when you stop looking for the second coming when you stop anticipating his return when your expectation slows then your heart for christ slows you grow cooler and your love for this world will increase and you know this verse You know it, it's there in your outline, but notice the direct connection between the love of the Father and the love of the world. You see it there, 1 John 2.15? It says, do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, get this, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, 1 John 2.15, connecting the love of the Father with the love of the world. It's pretty much in 2.15 here, it's all or nothing. It's you, you love one or you love the other. It's like being in the flesh or being in the spirit. You love one or you love the other. When you love the world, you don't love the Father. When you love the Father, you don't love the world. And I think this is true of Christians. We struggle in this. The more you love the world, the less you love the Father. The less you love the world, the more you love the Father. There's a, there's a love connection there. So ask yourself. And if you're really courageous, maybe today at lunch, after you thaw out, If you're courageous, ask your spouse, ask your parents, ask your true friends, what things of this world do you love too much? Every one of us will have an answer to that, and every one of us will be different. Every one of us. It could be shopping. Don't mean to step on your air hose. 
could be electronics or cars or pets or a pet or jewelry or clothes or books or collections or pictures or movies or sports or events or theme parks or food. What is it that competes for your love of the Father? What of this world do you love too much? Now get this. Uh, sometimes churches overreact to stuff like this, and Christians do as well. God's desire is not necessarily that you burn that item, but that you know that one day it will burn. Did you hear what I said? It's not necessarily that we always get rid of those things that are our temptation. We just need to know in our hearts and remind ourselves continually that that item is going to burn. Are you getting it? You don't have to burn the item. You just have to make sure that it's burned in your heart that you know it's going to burn. Now, there are other things that, you know, God desires for you to get rid of. But to make certain that it's really carved out of your heart, it could be that maybe like social media or a pet or an item or a place or an event, you may have to give up entirely because you're prone to treat it like an idol and you're weak in that area and we're all weak differently, all of us. But the real issue with the world is always a matter of the heart. It's always a matter of the heart. It's not the external. You can get rid of the external and still love it in your heart, right? The issue is, is what's going on in your heart? Are you loving the world or are you loving the Father? So important that you wrestle with that, that I do. Those things that have a hold on you, you're going to have to let go of. If you can't deal with it in your heart, you've got to get rid of it. Don't let anything stand in your way of loving your Savior. You were born again to love the Father, but it is the love of the world and things of the world that will drain your love for your Father as a Christian. So Peter says, look not at this earth, but look for the new earth. Where are you looking? Where are you looking? That's this passage, looking, looking, looking. Well, are you looking, anticipating, expecting this world, or are you looking for the world to come? This world or the world to come? Verses 12, 13, and 14 all call believers to look. There are three major directions which you can look. So which way are you looking? Are you looking up? Are you looking around? Are you looking at yourself? Are you looking up? Are you looking around? Are you looking at yourself? Are you looking to Christ, eternity, your future, your home in heaven, looking up? Your eyes are on Christ. You're fixing on Christ. You set your mind on things above. Or are you looking around you at the things of the world, the things that you love around you in the world? Or worst of all, you're looking at yourself. Only what you want, only what will satisfy you. Look at verse 12. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. Why would you want that? Why would you hasten for the day of God? Now look at that phrase, circle it in your Bible if you can, the day of of God, hastening the coming day of God. That's not the day of the Lord that's mentioned in verse 10. The day of the Lord is distinct from the day of God. What's the day of God? I like what John MacArthur writes, and he says, quote, the day of God refers to the eternal state when God will have permanently subdued all his enemies, like Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Or like 1 Corinthians 15, 28, when all things are subjected to him. Or like Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Like Philippians 3, 21, the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. 
The day of the Lord is the beginning of all these tumultuous events accompanying the last judgment of unbelievers, followed by the day of God. The day of God is the eternal state. It's the new heaven and earth. That's the day of God, when God becomes all in all, and we're with Him. Christians are eager for the hastening of the eternal state, right? We want it all to be done. Are you with me? We want it to be done, and we want to be there, and we want to be in, and yet the attitude of all the tumultuous judgments that preceded and friends who are going to suffer judgment, we're a lot more sober about that. So we look for the day of God, looking, verse 12, for the hastening of the coming day of God, the eternal state when all things are new and our, our hearts are filled with perfect love and perfect peace. There's no more sin. There's absolute holiness and righteousness. See that phrase, coming of the day of God? Coming means presence. Presence, personal presence. Face to face, speaking of the personal presence of Christ. You're looking for a Savior to come face to face. Now I caught you. Okay, because I caught myself. When you think about the return of Christ, I know how you think about it. When I was in the Capitol at one time, I was with an intern. She was one, one of my old junior hires. She's showing us she was the personal friend of Bob Dole. He's down the hallway, way down the end of this hallway. Bob Dole goes out to the hallway. He sees Lisa King, our friend, our now grown-up junior hire, and he waves at her. And I thought, wow, Bob Dole just waved at me. You know what I mean? And I know how you are. I know how I am. When I think of the return of Christ, I think about, oh yeah, that, that artist that I love, or that musician, or that band, and somebody waving at me, or that politician giving you a wave that, you know, Christ is going to give you a wave. That is not it. That is not it. When he comes, he is face to face with you. Individually, each one of us will be before Christ. You understand that? 2 Corinthians 5.10, we will each stand before him. It will be personal. It will be intimate. And somehow how we kind of rub this out of our psyche and our, we lack our anticipation and looking for the return of Christ is we make it this big event that affects the world but doesn't affect me. Let me tell you, friends, it affects you. If you're a believer, he's coming to meet with you. He knows every hair on your head. He knows when a sparrow hops. He knows every thought, every motive of your heart. He is meeting with you. That's how we get ready for Christ. That's how we live each day in anticipation of his coming. We long for Christ. We long for him. And when we don't long for, obviously, the judgment of the lost, in verse 12, when the heavens and the earth will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat, Christians, we have nothing to fear of that day because we have the love of the Father who loves us and we have nothing to fear from the world's complete destruction. But before this new heaven and earth, when every knee will bow before Christ and the entire universe, Peter calls it the heavens here, will be destroyed, literally demolished by fire, dissolving everything, every element with the hottest combustible heat. The entire world, down to the smallest atom, the elements will be completely burned up. It's going to be all done. Missionary, uh, martyred missionary Jim Elliott said it best. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's our attitude toward the world. We can't lose what, whatever we have in Christ. There is nothing here on earth that's going to last. People are eternal. The word of God is eternal. But nothing else. And the point is, 
Give your life to investing God's word into people, your children and others, to reach them for Christ, to equip them to become like Christ as the body of Christ. As you look at life this way, what do you think you should see this world as? I was just in Hawaii and uh, a couple years ago we had the opportunity to see the live volcano on the large island and uh, saw two giant swimming pools of lava coming out of this fissure every minute. It was unbelievable. And I thought, what would it be like to live in a home in the path of the lava? What would it be like to live in the path of the home you know, that, that, that the lava is going to destroy? And then maybe you live in Southern California, so you know, you're out in one of those bushy areas and the, the, the flash fire is going to come through and you're, you know your home's a goner. It's just going to go right down to the bottom, right? Or, or you live in a floodplain and it's just going to flood and wipe out, just totally wipe it out. Friends, that's how we're supposed to live because that's exactly what's going to happen. Your home, everything you possess, is going to burn. You're in the path of destruction. You're not, and those in Christ are not. That's the key. To live for eternity, expect this world to be completely destroyed. Secondly, in your outline, the eagerness for the coming creation of a new universe. The eagerness for the coming creation of a new universe. Peter's not only motivating you with coming judgment negatively in verse 12, but now verse 13, he's positively motivating you with the coming eternal home. He's promising his children that they will live in a new heaven and a new earth. Verse 13, totally unstained by sin, totally untainted by sin. He says, verse 13, but according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Totally new. The word new there means new in quality, new in character. It really actually refers to un, something unlike we've ever imagined before. This new heavens and earth will be far more new in, not than just new in chronology. It'll be new in character, brand new. And Peter says it's so awesome. Verse 13 says it's where righteousness dwells. Do you see that? That word dwells means to settle down and be really comfortable. You know, sometimes when you think about it, to stand before Jesus Christ as you are right now, you would not be comfortable. Those who have, like the Apostle John who knew him well, what did he do? He passed out. Because you can't stand in the presence of absolute perfection and absolute righteousness as you are. It's overwhelming to us. Are you getting that? That's why you need to have a new body. That's why you need to have a new earth and a new heaven so that we can stand in his presence. But understand, this newness here is where righteousness is now comfortable. Righteousness at, at home, in you, and around you. Are you getting this? In God's new order, perfect righteousness will enjoy a perfect, flawless existence around you, with you, and in you forever. Imagine. This is what you're supposed to imagine. What will life be like when you're fully you, full of joy, full of love, full of perfect peace, and no sin when you live in absolute righteous perfection. And yet you will be fully you. Won't that be awesome? Peter is declaring this, believers who anticipate the second coming will turn their focus from this world and start living in anticipation of this eternal future home that is awesome, exceeding, abundant, beyond all that you can ask or even think. 
Verse 12, following the complete destruction of this sin-stained universe, the day of God, uh, heaven and earth, uh, new heaven and new earth, the eternal state will arrive, and this corrupted world system will be completely annihilated, totally gone. And verse 13, according to his promise, that new day will feature a new heavens and a new earth. God will create an entirely new universe. Today, would you today do a 360? Uh, look all the way around you and go, burn, gonna burn, gonna burn, gonna burn, gonna burn, gonna burn. It's all gonna burn. And especially that neighbor I don't like, that's gonna burn down, all the way down. And then tonight, you know tonight when the clears up, the clouds are gone, and you, you know, in Southern California you see 15 stars, all 15 of them. That's going to burn. It's going to burn. It's going to burn. It's going to burn. You go up to the desert and you see the entire Milky Way. It's going to burn, going to burn, going to burn, going to burn. Remind yourself, this, this world is not our home. And this world is, is not going to exist in the future. That's what he's saying. And it is so good. It is so mind-blowing what we're going to face, what we're going to have for the future. That you and I, with everybody who's redeemed, will not even remember this world. You say, where do you get that from? Take a look, Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or what? They're not even going to come to mind. We get so caught up in this life, don't you, don't I? We get so caught up here and we're not even going to remember because it's going to be so incredibly awesome. So, take this home. Letter A, are you longing? Are you longing? One day soon the universe is going to be totally destroyed. In the final retribution, God's wrath will melt away the material world in a final holocaust of unimaginable intensity. And for God's enemies, this future judgment is actually an escapable nightmare. If you are not in Christ, this is an escapable nightmare. And it's true. But for God's children, it will mean the fulfillment of the best dream you've ever had of your future in heaven. The best dream. You'll be with Christ face to face. Each of you with Christ. He'll rule for a thousand years. And then he will create a new universe that will be so good. We, don't, we won't even remember the old. And God will ultimately triumph over all who oppose him. He will eradicate sin and he will destroy death. Are you longing for that day? I was gone once for 4.5 weeks, four and a half weeks. And uh, back when you could actually walk onto the jetway, I'll never forget meeting Gene on the jetway as we'd been separated for four and a half weeks, trembling in tears, waiting for her groom. And I thought, what a sweet picture of what the church should be. Just absolutely anticipating the return of Christ. May you and I manifest that same longing to be with him. Doesn't it say that in Colossians 3? Keep seeking the things above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above and not on the things that are on the earth. Set your mind. Fix your mind. 
Stop thinking so much about this life and think about the life to come. Again, I've never met the too heavenly-minded person that they're no earthly good. I've never met that person. Letter B, where are your affections? Where are your affections? Do your affections rest on this world or with Christ? Can you figure it out? Let me help you determine your affections by examining three of your essentials, all right? Here they are, three of your essentials. Look at number one, your calendar. Look at your calendar. Your use of time indicates where your affections linger. They do. They indicate your affections. Look at your conversations, what you talk about. What you speak is always a reflection of your heart and therefore a window into your affections. So your conversations, your calendar, and then look at number three, your cash. Calendar, conversations, and cash, your money. What you give, what you don't give reflects your affections. It's an indicator of where your heart's at. Christ is called to be our first love. That's chief in our affections. Above all other affections, are you loving him now? Are you living for him now? And your eternal home, or are you living for yourself and this temporary earth, this tinderbox ready to be burned? Is your love for this world stealing your love for Christ? Let her see, are you preparing today? Are you preparing today? We should be preparing every day. Are you preparing today? Uh, I was a little boy, and my dad told me, uh, don't make mud in the planter areas. He fixed up the planter areas. Come on, dads, you've said this to your kids. Do not, certain places, make mud. Fine. Here, don't make mud. Don't make mud over here in the front. Don't do that. But the best place, it was true, in our entire yard was that place he told me not to. And so I started making mud, and I, I was up into my ankles. I was making some of the finest mud that's ever been made. And I was squishing it with my hands, and I was actually stomping it like you're stomping grapes. And unbelievably, on this day, it was like 2 in the afternoon, my dad pulls in the driveway, came home early. And I stood there with my feet in the mud, with mud all over me, and I looked at him, and I went, I'm in trouble. Because he told me not to. And I was doing something he told me not to when he returned. When you're planning each day as if the Lord is going to return, you begin to evaluate your behavior saying, I, I don't want to be in a behavior that I would be embarrassed by, that I would be ashamed of when he returns. I want to be pleasing him. And that's what First John 3, 3, and everyone who has this Hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he's pure. The goal to live in such a way that he would be pleased. And letter D, are you clinging now? Are you clinging now? Christianity is, is not a name tag. It's not a t-shirt. It's not a bumper sticker. It's not attending church or having a Bible or having a few Christian friends. Christianity is knowing Christ. Knowing Christ. Knowing God. First well, not First John. John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you. This is eternal life. This is what it means to have eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. There's a lot of people in the church that are just like those in hell. They know about Jesus. But they don't know him intimately, personally, relationally. As a friend who they're intimate with, as a Savior who forgave them as a physician who healed them, 
as a redeemer who transformed them, as a Lord that they obey, that they follow, and that they love. Your sin, your sinfulness, your choices to sin, you're just like all the rest. There's no one better here than anybody else. Your sin separates you from God. You cannot be in his presence because of the sins that you've committed and because of your nature that desires sin. Only by surrendering to Christ, only by putting your faith in him, dependently in him, only by turning from your sin to follow him in repentance, can you be transformed from God's enemy to God's friend. You must cling to Christ as your only hope. Exchange all that you are for all that he is. I pray you will. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for just this reminder of your soon return and the reminder of what this world will be and a little taste, a little slice, a little expectation of what that future world is going to be. And Father, we pray that you would work in our hearts that we would live more every day in light of your coming. We would love this world less and that we would love you more. And Father, that if there are any here who need a new heart, would you, would you begin that work to draw them to yourself so that they might turn to you in faith and repentance and have new life in you now and a, an eternal life with you forever. And that they might not just know about you, but they would know you intimately and personally. Father, if there are any believers here who have been distant from you, would you bring them to a point of repentance? so they might walk intimately with you. We'll give you all the glory for what you'll do. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.